Well, that's about the last of it. Thanks, Dad. You know, the local college is a very fine school. Dad. Come here. I'm so proud of you. I love this town. I feel safe here. I know this place. But something compels me to leave, to see what else is out there. I have always believed in God. Everyone in this town does. I've gone to church my whole life. but wonder if I was born into another family in another country would I believe in a different God maybe I wouldn't believe in any God at all lately I've been doubting whether he or anything is out there My mind is filled with questions. Why am I here? How do I know if God exists? Is there only one God? Or are we just a bunch of particles and nothing more? Sometimes I try to capture evidence of a creator. Is all of this just an accident? Did it just come to be? How can something so beautiful come from nothing? I used to plead with God, show yourself just a glimpse, then I'd know for sure. He never did. Okay, I'm off. Drive safe. I will. I'll call you guys when I get there. I'll be okay, Mom. wanted to live in the city. It's so big and intimidating, but I can't wait to explore and meet new people. There's such a diversity of ideas about life here. Deep down, I'm afraid of what I might find, that I might lose my faith forever. But faith isn't enough for me anymore. How can I believe something in my heart if I don't believe it in my head? was to know the truth. But is there truth? How do I find it? Who do I listen to? 
What if what I find I don't even like? Does God exist? In a lot of ways, I hope he does. But I know that hoping for something doesn't make it so. I guess I'm on a journey to find the truth. Whatever that means. All right. Good morning. Good morning. I've got a little uh, head cold today, residual from, uh, I was sick all week. Had the flu all week, I guess. I can't, uh, tested negative for the other thing. And I had on my to-do list for this week, flu shot. And I, I hate leaving stuff unchecked, so I just marked out the word shot. And I checked it off. But anyway, um, <clears throat> we're here. I was supposed to have been in Mississippi, but I'm here and make that up uh, next month. And uh, we started this series last week called the Thinking Series. The Thinking Series. What do you need to think? You need this thing up here uh, between the ears. The Bible tells us in Mark 12, 30, that we're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. What's that next one? With all your mind and with all your strength. Now, that means we have to use our brains a little bit when it comes to our response to God. Just because you come to church doesn't mean you get to turn your brain off. In fact, we want you to turn it on, and especially during this series, we want you to start thinking. The Bible says we worship in spirit and in what? And in truth, and I believe that's heart and mind. And so we're in this thinking series asking some big questions. And the reason we want you to think a little bit is because if these questions don't impact you personally, they probably impact somebody you know. And if they don't impact somebody you know, then you need to get to know some new people, right? You need to get to know some people who are struggling with the big questions of life, people who, who don't know Jesus, people who are outside uh, of the circle of belief, we might say, and, and use this thinking series and some information we're going to give you to reach into their world and invite them across that bridge. You know, as we pray for them, pray for one, we also want to uh, reason with them and get them across the bridge into a relationship with, uh, with Christ. And so the thinking series is designed not just for you, but also for those you're going to interact with. And what you say to those people could make the difference in their eternal destiny, a conversation. You, could, you might think, well, I'm never going to see that person again, but you might plant a seed. Or you might water a seed that somebody else planted, and then God will do some miraculous work in that. But you have to be equipped and ready uh, to give some of those answers. So last week we looked at this question uh, does my life have meaning? And we said, of course it does. As believers, we believe that there's a God who created us, and God created us for eternity. Therefore, our life has meaning. Since we're going to live for eternal, eternity somewhere, we're going to live somewhere for eternity, right? Smoking or non-smoking, what's your choice? Huh? Rusty, what do you want? Non-smoking, yeah. And so uh, we... We, we know that our life has some meaning because we can impact future generations with decisions that we make 
down. Now, last week we assumed, we took on assumption that there is a God because we said in order to, for life to have meaning, there has to be a God and he has to have made us for eternity. There has to be eternity. So we, we made that assumption last week and said we were going to deal with it this week. And so this week is now, and we're going to ask the question, does God exist? Does God exist? I don't know how many people you interact with <clears throat> that believe God doesn't exist, but I guarantee you there are people out there in your circle of work or uh, recreational friends or family even that are asking this question and believe they have the answer to it, and the answer is no, God does not exist. And let me tell you something, if God does not exist, then all bets are off, they can live any way they want to live, and so can you. But we believe God exists, don't we? Now you might think, oh, well, we can go to the Bible, we can just open the Bible and say, oh, look right there. Did you know that the Bible does not give evidence for the existence of God. It's not why the Bible was written, not to give evidence. Now, the Bible by itself, I think, is evidence for the existence of God, but somebody could say, well, that's just all made-up religion. It's all made up based on your fairy tale assumption that there's a God. So the, the, Bible, the Bible is not a proof text to prove the existence of God. So if you're going to debate or reason or discuss with someone who doesn't believe in God, if you're going to have that discussion, you're not going to be able to use the Bible because they're going to toss that out on the first, uh, in the first 10 minutes and say, well, that, that's just that whole book is made up based on some people's made-up fairy tale assumption that there's a God. And in fact, the Bible does just make an assumption. In fact, it's, not, it's more than an assumption, though, but it's, it's a declaration that there's a God. And that's why the Bible starts. You know, the fourth word of the Bible is, is God. In the beginning, what? God. In the beginning, God created. It assumes that there's a God. It starts out saying, there's a God. And this God did all this. But it doesn't ever give us solid proof that there's a God. Now, <clears throat> I, I told you, I believe the Bible itself is proof that, you know, the way it came together and the, how we have it and that kind of stuff. But that's a whole separate line of evidence. And uh, there are over 20 lines of evidence. Psalm 14 says, the fool has said in his heart, what? What's the fool say? There's no God. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. Now, God's not just name calling here. He's really looking at this people who are denying his existence. Let's look at a couple more verses following what the fool says. They are corrupt, talking about these people who say there's no God. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. But they have all turned aside Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So let me give you the picture here. What's happening is God is stooping over to look down at these people who are saying he doesn't exist. I mean, just think about this. God is looking down at these people who say, you don't exist, 
And he's saying, how foolish, how foolish. And not only is he saying how foolish, but he is giving us the reason for their non-existence, uh, for their belief in his non-existence. And the reason that they believe that God does not exist is not an intellectual reason. It's a moral reason. It's a moral reason. Let's face it, folks. A lot of the people who don't believe in God, who choose not to believe in God, don't choose not to believe in God because of the intellectual reasons, because there's a whole bunch of them. They choose not to believe in God so they can live any way they want to live. It's a moral choice. It's a moral choice that they say, I'm just, you know, I don't want these heavy uh, duty uh, standards on me. I don't want somebody to steal my joy. I don't want the fuddy-duddies to come in and say, oh, you, uh, you, know, you got to live this way and you can't do this and you can't do that. So it's a moral choice and not an intellectual choice. And I want to tell you something else. If you're a parent or a grandparent, I don't have to tell you this, but our children and grandchildren are being bombarded with this foolishness. That, oh, why do you do that? Why do you believe that? Why do you go to church? Why don't you just come live the way you want to live? God is a fairy tale. It's all made up. And it is, it is a bombardment from the devil using the tools of culture to tell us that we're believing a lie and that the truth is there's no God. So whether you like it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, we are being hit, attack, challenge from every side, and especially our kids in schools, especially public schools and colleges and universities are just bombarding our kids with this nonsense. And that's what God calls it. He calls it foolishness. It's foolish. Now, we can't go around calling other people names. It wouldn't win an argument for us to go into the argument saying, you're a fool. You're a fool. Or you're an idiot. Or you're ignorant. I mean, those things don't go over well in arguments, do they? If you think they do, try them at home and, uh, and be ready to make up fast because they don't go over well. So what can we do as believers? What can we do? Well, first of all, we can live our lives like we really believe God exists. Amen? Amen? What can we do? One of the first things we can do is to live our life like we believe, we really believe God exists. And if you're going to talk to someone and try to convince them that there's a God who loves them, that gave his son to die for them on Calvary, that he, uh, he has uh, given them an opportunity to have their sins forgiven and to live eternally with him in heaven, in the bliss of heaven, and escape the wrath of hell, you're going to have to live like you believe it in order to convince them. You know what I'm saying? If you say one thing and live another way, they're not going to believe your message. And part of the problem we have in Christianity and evangelistic effort is because we are living like we don't really believe the message. We don't really believe Jesus is coming back. We don't really believe that Jesus died for everybody, that he loves all of us. We don't believe that because it's not showing in our life. That's called hypocrisy. And the second thing we can do is we can equip ourselves with the evidence of his existence. What can we equip ourselves with? The evidence of his existence. 
Again, there are more than 20 lines of evidence for the existence of God. I think the Bible in itself and how, you know, how it came about, how we got it, all that is one line, and we could discuss that, but I'm not going to discuss that one. I'm not even going to go into the 20 because we'd be here a little bit longer than we want to be here today, but I'm going to give you four. I'm going to give you four what I call easy lines of evidence to remember so that you can be assured that there is a God who exists and that you can have the, the evidence, the, the ammunition, if you will, to defend yourself uh, if someone says that there's no God. You know, sending our kids to college, sending our kids to school without this ammunition is, is foolish. And Christian parents and grandparents, especially Christian parents, we have dropped the ball over the last 40 or 50 years. We've dropped the ball. We haven't equipped our kids with this information, and that's why a lot of your grown kids are not in church today. That's why a lot of your grown kids don't have anything to do with their faith. That's why a lot of them place church and the priority of their faith down here on the list somewhere on the back burner or way down the priority list because they don't see a need uh, for this to be a part of their life. So I'm going to tell you something. One of these days, they're going to wake up and, have, and get to make their own choice about whether they go to church. They're going to wake up and be able to make that choice by themselves. They might be on a college campus. They might be out in their first marriage. Let's just say that's their only marriage. I was going to say their first job, but marriage popped into my brain there. First marriage is good though, right? Amen. I'm still on my first marriage, and we intend to keep it that way, right, honey? And so uh, your first job or wherever you are, they're going to make their own decisions. They're going to make their own decisions, and you want them to make this decision because they want to make the decision, because they see a need for this. It's time for us as Christian parents and grandparents to pick up the ball and run with it, and that's why I'm excited about the thing we're doing in 2023. I don't know if Philip told you about it last week. But it's going to get uh, the great big questions tackled at the lowest levels in our church, even at our children's ministry, <clears throat> called Foundations. So no one gets in on a borrowed faith. Let's talk about four lines of evidence today. I want to equip you. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time. Hopefully it'll convince you if you're not convinced. But at least it'll convi con um, convict you, convince you, and equip you if you're going to get into a, a conversation over Thanksgiving about who we're grateful to. The first one is biogenesis. Say that word with me, biogenesis. Now, this might be a new word for you, but it's really not a new word because you know these two words that are put together. The word bio refers to life. The study of life and living things is called what? Biology. Biology. And some of you have studied biology in depth. That's the study of living things. The word Genesis is the word that means what? Anybody know? Beginnings. Beginnings. That's why the first book of the Bible is called Genesis because it really comes from the first word in the Bible uh, in the beginning. Beginnings. So it's Genesis. So biogenesis is the study of the beginning of life. The study of the beginning of life. Maybe your kids have already asked you this, or they will. They'll say, Mommy, 
where did I come from? And you'll have to scratch your head and think, huh, is it time for this conversation right now? And you'll say, well, it must be. So you'll answer, go ask your dad. Right? Go ask your dad. And your dad will say, well, what did mommy say? Oh, well, mommy said to ask you. Well, here's the deal. You came from me and mommy. You came from me and mommy. And that might answer, uh, satisfy, you know, the question and answer her or him for a little while. But sooner or later, they're going to come back and say, well, where did you and mommy come from? Oh, well, we came from Nana and Papa. Oh, Okay. And then you're going to have to keep answering, oh, where did Nana and Papa come from? Well, they came from their grandparents, and they came from, or their parents, and they came from their parents, and they came from their parents. Eventually, you're going to end up where? Adam and Eve. You're going to end up with Adam and Eve. Now, where did Adam and Eve come from? That's going to be the question. And you know the Bible answers this, for, the Bible does answer this for us. And it, it, it answers this important, powerful question of biogenesis. This is in Luke chapter 3. Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus, and he's working his way back, you know, to Adam. And so down in verse 36, he gets to Noah, and he says, Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel. I love that name for one of the kids born in the church here recently, if some of you guys would pick that name up. Mahalalel the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who is what? The son of God. Can you see how the medical doctor Luke was thinking here? This is a medical doctor. Luke, he's providing a very powerful line of evidence for uh, life here on earth. And he says it goes back to Adam, yeah, but when it starts at Adam, it really doesn't start with Adam. It starts with God. So the argument or the line of evidence from biogenesis is that life can only come from life. What does biogenesis mean? Life can only come from life. Atheists have, have to argue that life comes from non-life, that something comes from nothing. And when does something ever come from nothing? That's what they have to argue, that, you know, that we all got here because you know, we just formed and, uh, you know, but go way back and there was this little tiny patch of molecules or neutrons or electrons or some ons, and they were spinning around and they exploded. Yeah, but where did that come from? And they say, they want to say, oh, well, it's eternal. No, it can't be eternal. It's something. It's something. Something came from nothing. Now, I had a little boy ask me a few weeks ago, where did God come from? Now, where did God come from? Well, God didn't come from anywhere. God's always been because if something created God, then that makes that something bigger or greater than God. There are some things we have to assume. We have to take on faith. And uh, it's better for me to take the fact that God is eternal and created something than to take that nothing was eternal and created something. Are you with me? Life comes from life. A guy by the name of Louis Pasteur, how many of you know that name? If you like milk, you know that name because your milk has been pasteurized. And that means what? It's all the bad stuff's been taken out of it. All the bad stuff's been taken out of it. All bad life, if you will. Back in, the, in, the, in his day, people had this 
belief that if you left, a, you know, when they watched garbage because they, they didn't have garbage collection like we do. They left garbage laying around and they might be laying in the street and they noticed in a day or two that there would be maggots on the garbage and there would be larvae and insects and rodents. And they, they're like, well, look at there, spontaneous generation. That's what, that was uh, what it was called. This garbage produced life. It produced life. Louis Pasteur was like, wait a minute, that's not, that, that's not true. So he took some garbage and sterilized it. You know, it's like the garbage in your son's bedroom. You know, it's clean garbage, right? And he sterilized it and he put it over in a corner and he and his assistants, they watched it and they watched it and they watched it and they kept waiting for maggots to appear and insects and rodents, but it never happened. Thus, the theory of biogenesis was confirmed. Louis Pasteur said, life can only come from life. And so that's biogenesis, all right? The second um, line of evidence is the evidence for, from design. Design is one of the most powerful lines of evidence for the uh, existence of God. And there are a lot of ways to demonstrate design, but one easy way is with the, with the hand. You know, you got a hand. Everybody look at their hand right now. Wake up. Slap yourself right there in the cheek with that hand and look at your hand. Now, what I want you to do uh, when you get home or even now is push that thumb against the palm of your hand. And then I want you to try to pick something up and write or you twist a water bottle off. And it becomes very difficult to do that because you don't have a thumb. If you walked around with no thumb, it would be hard. Now, we got a guy in our church that doesn't have a thumb, and, uh, and he was born with no thumb. I think what happened, I know Tim, and he likes to eat. I think he chewed his thumb off in the womb, and he ate his thumb. But Tim doesn't have a thumb. He's watching me right there. And he has had to adapt his hand to no thumb. It's a perfect it's a perfect thing. This little thumb makes this hand functional, doesn't it? I mean, that's what makes your hand functional is your thumb. Would you say that the hand without the thumb is pretty much useless? I mean, you could adapt to it, but life would be a whole lot different for you. Or think about your eye. You know, the design in the eye is powerful. Even Charles Darwin himself, this is Darwin who came up with the idea of evolution, something coming from nothing. He said this about the human eye. He said, to suppose that the eye with all its unique contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, you know, you can focus here and then there immediately, for admitting different amounts of light and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I confess, absurd in the highest degree. Well, he got that right, didn't he? At least he got one thing right. And when you look at the human eye, there is no way you can say that the human eye just evolved the way it works. Now, he went on to say, <coughs> he went on to say, <clears throat> I still believe in the origin of the species because that was his claim to fame. But he admitted that the human eye has been designed in such a way that it cannot be explained as a product of evolution. It's like walking through a forest. If we were walking through a forest and, um, and we saw an iPhone laying on the ground, we wouldn't say, oh, wow, look, 
must be an iPhone tree here somewhere. Look at that iPhone just fell out of that tree. It's like a little guy who believed that there, there were uh, uh, that toilets grew on trees because his mom said, I'm going to go in, I've got to buy some toilet trees. <laughs> or, you know, maybe a nest falls out of the tree. You see a nest fall out of a tree. You know it's a nest. It's, it's not just a bunch of twigs that have blown up against a tree. It's a nest. That nest had a designer. There was a mama bird somewhere that designed that nest. There was somebody who made that iPhone. In the same kind of way, when we look at things like the thumb and things all throughout our world, whether we're looking through a microscope or a telescope, we see evidence of design. You know, a very famous atheist and scientist, Anthony Flew, in 2007, left his atheism because of this line of evidence. He, desi- he decided that because of this evidence of design in the universe, there had to be a designer. He debated uh, William Lane Craig in 1998 and Uh, Gary Habermas a couple times on the resurrection of Christ. And these men made a real impact on flu. Unfortunately, he died in 2010, and we don't know that he ever came to Christ, but he did come to the conclusion that if there is evidence of design, there has to be evidence of a designer. And many of the world's leading scientists and microbiologists and cosmologists, microscopes, telescopes, are Christians because of this one line of evidence. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So we've looked at biogenesis and design. Let's real quickly get through the next two. The the next one is morality. Morality, what is morality? Morality is a standard of living based on a commonly accepted set of principles. In other words, we agree that this is what's right and this is what's wrong. If someone is living inside those standards, we say that's a moral person. If they live outside those standards, we say they're immoral. They're an immoral person. Where do we get our sense of morality? Some people say we get it from our culture. If culture tells you what's right and wrong, then that becomes the standard. Now, I'll admit that there are some cultures, like let's take an American culture. There's an American culture that says this is what's right and this is what's wrong. Now, if you're like me and you've lived long enough to see, there are some things that have changed, haven't there? There have been some things that used to be right that are now wrong and some things that used to be wrong that are now right. How many of you can attest to that? Yeah, and especially if you, know, if you grew up like I did in the, just the, in the 80s. Just in the 70s and 80s, you know that a lot of things have changed. Culture can get it wrong. Have you ever heard of Nazi Germany? Have you ever heard or read of the medical experimentation Hitler did on children and people with mental problems? It was cruel. It was cruel. And the, the mass extinction he attempted to pull off with the Jewish people Culture is not where we should get our standards of morality. Some people say, well, we get it from inside. We get it from ourselves. That's almost true, but we have to be careful there. We have to be careful there because when you get to determine what's right and what's wrong, then there's going to be a problem. 
here's going to be the problem. You're going to be driving down the highway one day at 90 miles an hour, and the policeman's going to pull you over. The state trooper's going to chase you down and pull you over, and he's going to say, what in the world are you doing? And you're going to say, what? And he's going to say, you're driving 90 miles an hour. And you're going to say, yeah, but that's okay. That's right for me. I mean, my car registers 150 on the speedometer. It must be okay for me to drive 90. You think he's going to buy that? Absolutely not, because he's bound by a set of standards, and that comes from the law. And if you create your own standards, you're going to bump up against those standards. So culture has gotten this from somewhere. And you know where it came from? Judeo-Christian values. That's right. The Bible has been the basis for what we call this American experiment. And the further we get away from the Bible, the further we get away from true morality and what is right and what is wrong. You with me? Everybody understand what I'm saying? One guy, one Frenchman said this. He said, America is great because America is good. If America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. And where do these, where do these cultural standards come from for the, the, the law that we have? Well, it comes from the 10 suggestions back in the Old Testament. How many of you know where the 10 suggestions are? Not in there, are they? The Ten Commandments. Is it wrong to murder? Is it wrong to steal? Is it, is it wrong to worship idols? Is it wrong to covet what doesn't belong to you? Is it wrong to commit adultery? Sure, yes, yes, yes. All these are wrong, and they permeate uh, just about every set of laws in every culture. And there's one that permeates the heart of the law. It permeates every single culture timelessly. And it comes from Matthew 7, 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, if, somebody, if you want someone to treat you some way, you treat them some way. You treat people the way you want to be treated. And that's, that permeates culture. Where did it come from? It came from Jesus. It came from the Bible. Morality is rooted in the nature and the character of God. Amen? That's where we get our morality. There's no explanation for why we can recognize beauty, why we have a conscience, why we can live by any standard other than God put this inside of us. Atheists cannot disagree with this. They say we choose to be moral to have a better society. That's pointless. Why have a better society if there's no God? Just get all you can. Get all you can, grab it all, go for the gusto, and uh, die with the most toys. That's not the way God designed us. The last line of evidence here is the line of experience. Now, there are some uh, Christian thinkers and apologists who don't like this line because they say, well, that's not a thinking thing, that's a feeling thing. But really, it's one of the most powerful lines of evidence we have uh, is my experience, my experience is that there is a God because I have a personal, a living, and an active relationship with, with him through Jesus Christ. And I spoke to him this morning and before I came up on stage. But you know what? You have your own experience. Now, let me qualify this by saying your experience needs to be within the boundaries of Scripture or not go against Scripture 
or half us, uh, you know, cause us to have to write new scripture, which has happened. So you might say, oh, I had an experience, you know, I had an experience. Okay, let's hear your experience. All right, that, 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 the Bible says that cannot happen. Or the Bible says that should not happen. Your experience was not from God. But if your experience falls within, maybe it was a voice, you know, a still small voice. You thought it was audible. Maybe it was in your head. Maybe it was some moment that you had in life and you should be dead today, but God spared your life and you clearly heard him speak. Maybe it was a word that somebody said, maybe the preacher, maybe somebody in your life. Maybe it was how God highlighted some scripture or some song, a line from a song, whatever it was, whatever your experience, whatever this overwhelming feeling was in your life, that's your experience. And nobody can argue with that. You know, to demonstrate this, I, I want to ask you, how many of you have been to Portugal? Anybody been to Portugal? I didn't think so. We had a guy last service who'd been to Portugal. Let's say you're in Portugal. You're in Portugal, and your friend calls you up. Your friend calls you up and says, hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing great. Where are you? I'm here in Portugal. What? Portugal? You say, yeah, I'm, I'm in Portugal. I'm having a great time. And he says, no, you can't be in Portugal. What do you mean I can't be in Portugal? Well, Portugal doesn't exist. What do you mean Portugal doesn't exist? Well, I've never seen it. I've never been there. Therefore, it cannot exist. But I'm here in Portugal right now, you say. I'm standing here. This is my experience. I'm in Portugal. So it's hard to argue with your experience. If that's your two feet, if that's what happened to you, if that's where you are, it's hard for somebody to argue with that, isn't it? And so that that's, can be one of your most powerful lines of evidence. If it's a living, vibrant relationship with God, by faith he is saved you, he, he has healed you, he has forgiven you, he's changed your life, he's given you meaning and a purpose to live out. That's my experience, and I want to tell you, you can't take that away from me. Psalm 42 says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day, where is your God? We know where our God is, don't we? Our God is alive and well and living in each one of us who know him as personal Savior. Amen? So here's four lines of evidence for you. For you, biogenesis, life can only come from life. Design, you know, God made things, and if there's design, there's a designer we talked about morality rooted in the character and nature of God. That's where it comes from. And my experience, your experience, that tells me there's a God because I have a living and active relationship with him. And you know what? This matters. You know why it matters? Because one day each one of us is going to stand in front of him. And we're going to give an account for the things done in our body, whether good or bad. And if you don't know him as your Savior, you've never trusted him as your Lord, then today's the day to do that because there's going to come a day when there's going to be a reckoning. If you've never trusted him, if you've never followed it up with baptism, if you've never decided you're going to live for him, you know, some people, they just get wet and then they go sit down and they, they don't live for him. But if you've never, uh, you know, really believed that 
God made a difference in my life and I'm going to show the world this then you've got some ground to make up would you do that this morning would you make those decisions let's stand and have prayer and then we'll sing our final song Lord God thank you today for your goodness and grace thank you for this evidence and there's so much more to prove that you're real but Lord we know it here because we have a relationship with you and if there's one here who doesn't I pray today would be the day they make the start of it that they'd come toward you because you've opened your arms up toward them you've made a way through Jesus Christ on the cross for us to live with you for eternity that's my prayer in Jesus name amen come as we sing